Blog Talk Radio. Hey, hey. Good morning, everybody. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And let me say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And, guys, I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate you, and we are going to have a good time today. Um, we're going to be speaking with the founders of the new the new Black Coach, okay? And so we'll be talking to them about their grassroots movement and what they're um, establishing and why they are establishing this type of grassroots movement. So I just think it's important that you guys listen in, call in, and encourage them. And because one thing I will say, at least they're doing something. So, I mean, that's extremely important that, you know, they're out here, they're trying to make a positive impact, you know, in this community. And it's what's needed. It's definitely what's needed because, you know, with what's happening now, <clears throat> excuse me, with what's happening now, you know, we're, the movements that you're seeing, basically this is a new phase of the civil rights movement. And, you know, I just think it's important that everyone gets out here and participates in in the best manner that you possibly can. So, you know, again, I appreciate them for reaching out and coming on the show. They'll be here later on in about a half hour or so. But definitely you all will reach out to them and encourage them and ask questions. They're, you know, they're open to that. So I think that's a wonderful thing. And I'm just looking forward to speaking with them a little bit later. So... Last week, I did not do a show. I was tired. But I did release um, another show, and I was talking about the black church, the black secular community, and social justice. And then I had another show out there, which is part two of, let me see here, which show was that? Well, go look it up. You'll see. Part two. (laughs) You know, so it's a couple of new shows out there that, you know, I'm going to promote probably later on today or later on this week. And they were actually really, really good shows. And so next Sunday will be the third part in our White Identity Politics um, show. And we're going to be talking about anti-blackness. And we have a schedule for two hours, but something tells me it's really going to take three hours So we're going to end up doing the one-hour overtime. So I'm just trying to give you guys a heads up. I have a lot of information for that show, and so I'm really looking forward to that. After that show, I'm going to do a two-parter, and it's called Black America, New Deal, or Raw Deal. And so with that there, um, you know, I'm going to be talking about the New Deal, how it was implemented, how the two political parties pretty much switched at that time because then you had the Democrats who were Dixiecrats who were pro-slavery and the Republicans were anti-slavery. 
And the Republicans was the party of blacks at that time. But when the New Deal came around, a lot of black people switched over because they felt that they would benefit from the New Deal. And so we'll talk about that and talk about what happened and what has happened subsequently since the New Deal was enacted. And it's important for you guys to understand that. You know, I want you to understand buzzwords like states' rights and all of these things. It, it it makes a difference, and those are trigger words. And so if you go back to the show that I did on affirmative action, you know, I talked quite a bit about that. And, you know, I still never got through everything, and I think we're going to end up doing another show, and it's going to be wonderful. So that's going to be a two-parter. After that, I'm going to talk about the Liberty Party. And I know some of you are like, the Liberty Party, what is that? And it was a third party from 1840 to 1848. And so go out and look for it. I actually ordered the book, The Liberty Party, 1840 through 1848, Anti-Slavery Third Party Politics in the United States. And it was written by Reinhold O. Johnson. So I'm just trying to give you all a heads up about that. Um, In addition to that, because that's only going to be one show. I think we can handle that in one show. And after that, we'll be talking about black humanists, free thinkers, and their role in the communist and socialist movements in America. That's definitely going to be a two-parter because we're going to be talking about Hubert Henry Harrison. We're going to be talking about Asa Philip Randolph, um, John G. Jackson, and a number of other people that, you know, that we consider free thinkers, humanists, atheists, you know, different designations there, but they play integral role in in what we're doing now as, you know, black free thinkers, um, so on and so forth. So I think that's important um, that we understand the history a little bit more in depth because, I mean, I talked about, you know, some of these people that I mentioned earlier, but I've never really gotten in depth about their, you know, political views, um, even with Hubert Henry Harrison, the conflicts that he had with Booker T. Washington and how he lost his employment. He was working at the post office, and his his termination was political. And so, you know, telling you all about that type of information and the role that they played, and, you know, Karl Marx, because Marxism in the black community has, has a role. And so we're just going to talk about all of that, um, because I went to the International Socialist Organizations Conference, which was in Chicago, and I had a really good time. And, you know, there were many, many different panels, and it's just it's amazing. It's a lot of this history that's been hidden. You know, go look up CLR James. You know, it's just so much information, and we'll get that out to you guys. That's definitely going to be a two-parter. Then we're going to talk about capitalism, and that's going to be a three-part show. And so I was talking about the book, The Half That Has Never Been Told, and it's going to be based on some of the notes that I've taken from that. But we discovered a new book this week, and I posted it on my wall, and this book is called The American Slave Coast, A History of the Slave Breeding Industry by Ned Sublett and Constance Sublett. And so 
I've already ordered it on my Kindle, and I haven't had a chance to crack into it yet, but it promises to be a really good read. So, you know, go and take a look at that. And in the two-part show that I'm going to talk about, you know, black humanists, free thinkers, and their role with the socialist and communist movements, I'm also going to reference a book called Hammer and Ho. Again, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. And this is written by Robin D.G. Kelly. So, again, Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. And this was about some black farmers. And, you know, it ties into cooperatives, and our community has a real, very, very long history in cooperatives. So, guys, you know, go out there and... Get some of these books. Like I said, you can get them on Amazon. You can get them on Half.com. You know, sometimes you can find them for a penny. Sometimes you can find them for a dollar. And so, uh, like I said, guys, go. This is excellent. Some really, really, really good stuff here. So I just wanted to make sure that you all kind of knew where I was coming from with some of these shows. Just trying to give you a heads up and you know, so you can know where I'm coming from. You can get a head start. Like I said, you don't even have to buy the books. You can go on Google Books, and, you know, they let you read a nice amount of the books. So I just want to let you guys know that and to encourage you to go out and start reading a little bit more about, you know, our history because it helps you to understand what's happening in this country now. And so, you know, I just want to give you a little preview for, you know, for next week. And, oh, here's another book that I'm telling you all to check out, The Condemnation of Blackness. Again, The Condemnation of Blackness. And this is with Khalil Muhammad, who is director of the Schomburg Center in New York City. And so, you know, um, we may have to revisit this. Not may. We will end up revisiting this specifically. Uh, but, you know, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about it now. Because, I mean, you all hear me when I get to going off about some of these so-called charities or nonprofit, you know, uh, you know, organizations claiming that they're sending money to Africa to help the African children. And what I find so interesting is, is that, Staging children of color, because it's not only in Africa, they do this to the children in India, Cambodia, you know, um, Native Americans, just a number, and Latinos, and, and they stage these photos for these kids to look as poor as possible, you know, and, and in, in this country, you know, looking at this photo here, you know, Khalil Rose staging these black children as pickaninnies. Right, and said complete with protruding bright white eyes, and you know there was a lot of that then because my grandmother's mother was a slave, and with the protruding white eyes, that's generally issues with your thyroid, and it's usually hypothyroidism, so underacting thyroidism, and that that particular autoimmune disorder runs in my family. And so, you know, there are different people in my family that have been affected by this. And not just my family, you know, if you go and you look at the statistics for things like 
hypothyroidism, lupus, but particularly thyroid, it has, um, you know, the numbers are great as far as how it affects, you know, the black community. And so back then, you know, they would say you had a goiter if they found it. But, you know, because of science, we now know what causes some of these particular issues. So in this particular photograph, like I said, black kid dressed poorly. One is sitting in a chair, and both of them have big slices of watermelon, right? And just, you know, the whole show. And basically this was, you know, staged, and this photo was taken in the yard of the Pennsylvania Society for Protecting Children from Cruelty. And basically, the racialized depiction of needy black youth draws on popular racist imagery as a stark reminder of the fundamental differences in black and white poverty. And so that came from Charities, October 7, 1905. And we still see this to this day. You know, you know, like I said, they, they will portray some kids in Africa as poorly as they can, flies, so, you know, they don't rub something sweet on them so that the flies will come over. And if you go and you just look it up online, you don't have to get on the plane and go, but look up Johannesburg. Johannesburg is like a miniature New York City, okay? There are a lot of modern places in Africa, but they don't necessarily want to show you that. And even in this country, in the United States, you know, the way that they portray blacks, especially the media, and it's important that we understand it. That's why I think it's important for us to go out here and start these different movements. And so that's why, you know, I'm proud to have Daryl Bates and Dr. Keisha Pitt on the show today because it's important. And we need more of our own news media, you know. And so, you know, some ideas behind that. So, I mean, like I said, get out of here, make a difference. You yourself can make a difference, and it doesn't take a lot, just a little bit. You do a little bit, you do a little bit, and you do a little bit over here, and it all adds up, and it's important, and especially how they're portraying black people in this country. And so when we talk next week, I'm not only going to talk about the racism in the south of the United States, we're going to talk about the racism of the north. Excuse me, because a lot of times that's overlooked. And, you know, it's important that it's addressed because the racism in the North is a little bit more subtle, and sometimes it's hard to pick it out. And especially Chicago. Chicago is one of the, well, basically, Martin Luther King said Chicago is the most racist city in the United States. And it is. It's a lot of racism up here. You know, the old adage is, if you can make it in Chicago, you can make it anywhere. You know, so, you know, just wanted to kind of give you all some insights of this. And so, you know, a lot of this is repressive politics. And so I talked a little bit about that on the show. Um, uh, I'm just asking questions. So if you go and look up that show, I'm just asking questions. I talked about repressive politics, politics, and a number of other things. But, you know, what I find interesting with some of these charities that are claiming to send money overseas, they're not even helping the people in this country. So why should we actually believe that they're going over 
to help other people. There should be a system of checks and balances. And this is why I, you know, I support the IRS doing line item audits on all 501c3s, whether they're religious or non-religious, because you have too many people out here misappropriating funds and, you know, can't account for a dime of the money. So, and then then they make up these excuses, but they don't have any receipts. Make them show you the receipts. If you're donating money to any of these charities, make them show you the receipts, trust me. And, you know, I have a few that I'm keeping an eye on, so it's just really interesting. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Just go, and like I said, everybody can play a part. Um, You know, there are a lot of blacks that do not necessarily um, support Black Lives Matter, and that's fine. You know, there are other groups out here, other movements out here. You know, just go out, get out of the house, and play a part. And I'm laughing because, you know, me getting out of the house can be somewhat difficult at times. But, you know, I will say over the past couple of years I've gotten out a lot more but especially in the past several months, you know, when I'm feeling up to it, I go out and participate in some of these things. And, you know, it makes me feel better knowing that I'm actually playing, you know, a role in what we're trying to do here. So, you know, go back, read up, you know, one part here where it's saying the NAACP, they issued a call for a conference on racism in 1909. And so, you know, you have that happening now. And what I find ironic is there was an article that was released most recently, and it was talking about Hillary Clinton and her support of the gay rights movement. And she stated to, you know, some of the white activists there that they changed a lot of minds in in this country, including hers. And, you know, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, you know, called it out. And she said, oh, Hillary, so the white gay activists changed some some minds, but you're telling us, Black Lives Matter, that we can't change hearts. Hmm. What say you? What are your thoughts on that? So it's like the white activists, the white gay activists, were able to change some minds about, you know, um, human rights and civil rights for the LGBTQ community. But the Black Lives Matter, we may as well give up on trying to change some minds and hearts. How does that work? You know, and especially since, you know, the LGBTQ community and, and the movement was based on action, actions of people of color in New York, trans people of color. You know, those were Latino and, and black trans people who started that. They decided to fight back, and they whitewashed the movement. They whitewashed the movie. If you all want to know some truth about it, um, I posted on my wall the other day about 10 queer movies that that give you more history about the LGBTQ community and history than Stonewall. Because that Stonewall movie, you know, a lot of people, you know, boycotted it because it was whitewashed. You know, the hero was a hetero white male. So how does that work? 
So it's just interesting and things for you guys to think about because I just think it's important that we start challenging some of these notions out here and, the you know, the revision history. It's important because, you know, but the reason why, you know, I'm keep, I keep saying that it's important because a lot of us don't know the history. And that's one of the reasons why we do this show, to kind of give you an insight to the history and the policies and how all of this has played throughout time and the impact that it has now, why we are in the position that we are in now. And so it's just important to understand that. But, yeah, we're going to talk about racism in the North. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the abolitionists and the Quakers. And, you know, yes, definitely go and look up the history of the Quakers in, in you know, abolition and civil rights. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, Bayard Rustin, his mother was a Quaker. If you all didn't know that, he was biracial and his mom was a Quaker. As a matter of fact, um, you know, a lot of his family is still alive, of course, and, you know, many of them are still based in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, you know, go and look this up, and we can still reach out and touch some of these people. You know, so like I say, you know, we have a habit of throwing our legends and, you know, our heroes away, and we shouldn't do that. We should appreciate them. We should let them know, thank you, great job. Thank you for pioneering and and, and being a great example. And so it's just, you know, like I said, it's, it's a matter of showing appreciation, but learning all of this history, you know. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, what's happening now with, Blacks being killed in the streets. Um, go and look up Ida B. Wales and her anti-lynching movement, and compare—excuse <clears throat> me—and compare it to what's happening now. And so there was an article, and it was saying, you know, basically, do we need to have another anti-lynching movement? And many of us are saying yes. Because, you know, we're seeing them kill, you know, black and brown bodies in the streets. Not only here in the United States, but overseas as well. You know, and so, you know, we we need to talk about the drones and the, the drone killings of people of black and brown bodies in these other countries. Because we're talking about Black Lives Matter, Latino Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter in this country. Don't their lives matter overseas as well? I would think the answer to that would be yes. So, you know, unfortunately, many of us do not want to talk about certain issues because we believe that it may cast a bad light or denigrate President Obama. And all flawed. I'm going to leave it at that. But we need to have that conversation. We definitely need to have that conversation. So, guys, look it up. Understand what's been happening and how a lot of the things that you see now, it's not new. History repeats itself. It's just different players. And so... You can go back and look about look at how Philadelphia 
barred blacks from good jobs, yet they supported charity. And so what's interesting is, you know, there was an article, and I'm going to post it today if I find it, and it talks about the hypocrisy of charity. And it was talking about how certain conditions are created. And then they turn around and create a charity to deal with these particular situations that they created. So it's just interesting. One example of that that I found hilarious was Walmart. They underpaid their people, but then they started a charity giveaway asking its employees to donate to the poor employees. And and it's like it's just absolutely baffling. It's like instead of asking the employees who may make a dollar an hour more than the other ones to give money to them when they're barely making it and, you know, they have link and in, in getting subsidies to kind of, you know, subsidize their income, it's just amazing. Amazing, absolutely amazing, the audacity. So go and <laughs> look at how all of this has happened. Um <laughs> It's just, it's amazing. It's it's a lot of people out here, a lot of people in history that has been overlooked. And like I said, a lot of these things have been going on, and this is why you hear us saying that we need to start, you know, attacking some of these policies and, you know, deconstructing them and, you know, basically forcing the hand of the politicians to go in and change a lot of these policies and laws. Because, you know, as I've stated before, and I've posted, you know, many articles talking about how, you know, a lot of this racism and white supremacy is woven into the Constitution and the laws of this country. You know, I just posted an article talking about um, the Second Amendment and how all of that was um, basically tethered to slave states. And if you go and you read it, you'll see they're talking about, um, you know, slave hunters and border patrol and all. This has been going on for a long time, you guys, a long time. And so this is why it's good that we have different grassroots movements out here addressing that and, and, and basically holding the feet to the fire of these politicians, you know, because it's important because nothing will get done. You know, even the Civil Rights Movement or the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they, on paper, they gave us, you know, a couple of crumbs. But trust me, they took several more back in the background and the language, you know, allowed for these loopholes and allowed for certain other, you know, rights to be taken away. And this is why you have many of us saying that we are in a worse condition now than we were then. You know, a lot of the black wealth was absolutely decimated in 2007, 2008. You had people, you know, I posted a few stories about some of our senior citizens, black senior citizens, losing their homes that they paid off 30, 40 years ago because they owed $10 in, in tax. So they paid their tax bill, but it went up by $10, and they didn't know it or they didn't read the mail or what have you. But they lost three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, you know, property for a $10 delinquency. And so this is why it's good that we have people like Daryl Bates and Dr. Keisha Pitt because they're out here and they're, 
you know, trying to put this program together. And so, you know, it's, it's exciting, you know, because it's like I'm looking at a lot of the young people and they're getting out here and basically they're trying to find a better way. And as I stated before, I never thought that I would see this. I never thought that I would see this. And this is why, you know, we're trying to encourage them to get out here to be a part of the community, tell your truth. And like I said, at the Black Lives Matter conference or the Movement for Black Lives this past July, you know, I was looking at all of these young people and how open and how free they were, how they're living their lives for themselves, but yet there's a solidarity, there's a kinship, you know, with other people, and and they understand that, yes, we are our brothers and sisters' keepers. And so it was just a beautiful thing to see, and I was just laughing because, you know, I wish that we had this when I was their age. You know, but I had a lot of freedoms, you know, in my in my 20s, early 20s as well. And so it's important, but, you know, you have a lot of folks out here, a lot of different people. Encourage them. Encourage them. So, you know, I'm going to introduce, you know, our guest today. So we're going to converse with Daryl Bates and Dr. Keisha Pitt, and they are the founders of the New Black Coast. So let me um, introduce their bio, and then we'll get into the conversation. So, you know, on their page, if you guys go out there to their web page, and the URL for that is thenewblackcodes.com. Again, thenewblackcodes.com. And so they began the New Black Codes after realizing that our community was in serious peril. With the media in a frenzy over the recent crimes against our community, we decided that something had to be done and done now. We didn't want to just sign a petition or talk within our family and friends about all of the issues our community had. We believed our community needed real change. We researched statistics on our wealth, assets, family life, and health compared to other racial groups. The results were so alarming, we got to work right away. We believe this change can only come with improving all of these categories. We cannot play victims any longer because the laws keeping us back, you know, have been removed. We must now be the players in this game. And so besides thriving to improve our community, personally, we enjoy spending time with our families and friends, Dr. Keisha Pitt is a successful chiropractor, and Daryl Bates is a thriving business owner. Both have a love for learning and charity. So welcome to the show, Dr. Keisha Pitt and Daryl Bates. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Thank you for having us. Hey, you are quite welcome. I'm doing well. And happy birthday, Daryl. I appreciate that. (laughs) All right, yeah, but I mean, I thank you guys for taking some time out to speak with us today. And so, like I said, you know, I just think it's very important that we have these grassroots movements and how these movements are coming into the community and trying to build a solid foundation. And so, you know, we've seen over the years and 
throughout history that we have been able to attain, you know, wealth. We've been able to prosper in our communities, you know, with the example of Black Wall Street, you know, Tulsa, Rosewood, even Wilmington. And, you know, I had Chris Everett from Wilmington on fire. I had him on the show, and we were talking about Wilmington, North Carolina, and how, you know, they had basically, you know, the politicians elected were black, Blacks owned quite a bit of, you know, property, and what happened was you had some white um, vigilantes come in and destroy that because, you know, they weren't prospering as well as the blacks. And that was the very first and only insurrection in this country. Now, I had someone challenge that and say that there were more insurrections, and I forgot to research it, but I'm writing it down now. Because, you know, that's very important. So one of the things that I've been talking to people about, and I state emphatically, we have the talent and the knowledge to create great wealth, to be prosperous. The problem is, how do we keep it? You know, because, yeah, go ahead, dear. Exactly, and and that's exactly what we're trying to uh, approach. Um, now, just to make a distinction, we make a, a real distinction between wealth and rich. Now, we have a lot of rich people. We don't have that many wealthy people. And the, and the way I look at it is uh, rich is if you work for your money, and wealth is if your money works for you. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we need to get to, and that's through ownership. That's through uh, owning parts of the businesses, owning your own business. And please, uh, Kim, let me know if you can't hear us because we're on a speakerphone, and sometimes I get animated, so <laughs> I might go away from you a little bit. So, so just let us know if you can't hear us, all right? I hear you just fine. Go ahead. Okay, great, great. So that's what we need. We need, to, we need to own parts of businesses, our own businesses. We need to control our own money. We need to control our image in the media. There's a lot of things we have to do, and I think the New Black Codes is a good way to start our foundation. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, that's true. And we need to go back and create, you know, wealth in our particular communities so, I mean, you know, when we're talking about the new black codes here and, you know, how did this come about and, you know, where did the name come from and, you know, what's the significance of this project? Okay. So um, a lot of things impacted us getting started. I mean, we saw all the things that's going on on TV, but what really motivated us was um, there's a letter that we saw on YouTube, that we heard on YouTube, that was written by a, a white individual. He he wrote it and sent it to that radio station. Now, there were several things in that letter. I mean, you could go on YouTube and just type in their store place. And if you haven't uh, seen this letter or heard this letter, Definitely go Google it, go on YouTube, and type in, you know, their store slaves. You need to hear this because it's indicative of what, how people see our community. Exactly. And, and the worst part about it is a lot of it was true. Yes. That's what bothered us the most. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, some of the basic tenets of that letter is stated that we are, we are consumers, we're not investors, right. that we, um, we're talkers, not doers, like you talked about. We give awards to the best speakers right. instead the of the best, best doers. doers. They even talked about that we have all this knowledge, and we're talking about this today, that we have all the knowledge there, but we're not, we're not using it. A lot of, a lot of our 
community members, they, they may not read, but the knowledge is there. We have libraries, we have the Internet, we have these talks that we do on the radio. So it's out there. So that, that's basically what the catalyst for starting this. When we saw that letter, actually we heard it on YouTube, then we, we researched it and actually read it. When we saw that, um, we said we got to do something, and we got to do it now, and we have to make a change and find out when change is made in this country, how exactly it's made. And so we came to a lot of conclusions. It's all on the New Black Codes, but we need the help of our community. And to answer your second part of the question, how the name got started, well, the Black Codes were uh, a set of laws uh, right after the Civil War. They were called the Black Codes, and they were designed. Um, they, did, they were designed to do a lot of things, but this was the biggest thing that got to us. They mm-hmm. were basically designed to keep the newly free slaves in a labor-based economy that's based on low wages and debt. Now, if you look at where, we're, where we are today, it's basically the same thing, labor-based economy based on low wages and debt. So we decided to coin the new black codes where it tells us how to actually obtain wealth, what real wealth is, what real health is. We go into our changing our mindset. We go into the, uh, the black man, the black woman. It's just, a, it's just a, a great thing, a great foundation for us to kind of build on our new traditions and foundations of our traditions. Right, because other exactly. people... Um... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I want you to go ahead. I was just saying exactly. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> because we've, we've noticed that other groups come to this country and they have those traditions already. They have traditions based on uh, uh, educating their, their children on wealth building. And those people, they literally, they'll work together, live together, build their business together, pass it on to their children. And that's what we should be doing. And just to piggyback off of that, they have... Uh, let's say an Asian comes here. Well, they have centuries of tradition routing back from their country of origin right. that they can rely on. Now, as we know, our country of origin, our continent of origin, I should say, mm-hmm. Africa, was taken away from us. We don't have those traditions. Right. They're, they're gone. We don't know what they are. We are a relatively young community in that uh, we really just got all the rights that everybody else had in the 60s. So mm-hmm. we're talking about 50 years now that we're, we're a community and we're a young community. So we need to develop those foundations, develop those traditions, and implement them. That's the most important thing. We have to implement these things that we all already know. And that's the, and that's the basis exactly. of the new black code. Oh, yeah, no, exactly. And, and you know, yeah, about implementing. And exactly what we're talking earlier, you were talking about wealth. And it's not just about money. You know, it's about our health. It's about, you know, um, our futures, our children, all of that. Exactly. You know, it all has value, and we need to understand that. And so, you know, when you have programs like this with this grassroots movement that you're starting, you know, it has the potential to create um, a lot of, you know, career opportunities, jobs, um, to people in our own community because, you know, we always hear people talking about the violence and then they want to bring up that old trope of black-on-black crime, but no one wants to address the issues of the lack of economic and educational opportunity and, you know, the impetus behind a lot of this crime. But then they also are very disingenuous because, you know, 
in white communities, you know, you have the same issues, but they've turned black on black crime into the narrative of choice. And so, you know, with this type of program that you're putting forth and you're implementing, you know, it will bring jobs and educational opportunities to those in our community. And so, you know, what are you putting in place? Um, you know, what would you like to offer the people in the communities? I mean, what type of industries would you like to put in, um, you know, economically and educationally disadvantaged communities? In short, we want to put in everything that we see now in any community but have it be black-owned. So I'm talking about we need, and this is going to take time. We understand that. But we need we need our own dealerships. Yep. We need our own car manufacturers. We need our own grocery stores, hotels. We need our own banks. We need our own anything, restaurants, anything you can think of that you see, mm-hmm. we need our own that because that's how community, that's how wealth is maintained within a community. If you take, take a look at the Asian community, they spend their money, and we have some statistics on this, right. they spend their money between their community, and it, 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 I think the, the, the statistic was it, it lasts 30 days or something like that? For, um, according to an NAACP study, in our community, it, our dollar lasts only circulate for six hours. Right. In the Asian community, it circulates for about a month, and the Jewish community circulates for about 20 days, and then the white community circulates for 17 days. So that shows right there that we don't have enough black businesses, and the ones we do, a lot of us are not patronizing those businesses. Right. And we, we really have to change their mindset because we, we talked about this, that um, a, a lot of it is we we have a loyalty for our community. We have a loyalty to Christ instead of right. loyalty to each other, and that's what we should be doing, a loyalty and, to each other. And that's a, a real difference in the rest of the communities in America who are thriving. Our loyalty generally is to Christ. In other words, if it costs too much but it's black-owned, we're not going to get it. The Asian community, Jewish community, white community, if it's their, travel. <laughs> right, their loyalty is to their community. Right. And we have to change that. So to answer your question, in short, we need everything that everybody else has mm-hmm. but it's black-owned and black-patronized. That's what we need. Right. And it's, uh, the statistics are, are pretty sad because in a 2012 study, it showed that black-owned businesses only account for about less than 7%. That's, that's right. scary. And we're 13% of the population. Exactly. So that's a problem. Another another thing you brought up, you brought up educational opportunities, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Um, what we try to do with the Black Coast is we try to teach what real education is. In other words, you know, if you go through the school system, which I did and which Keisha did, um, you'll see that we learn a lot about European things. It's a Eurocentric um, education system. It doesn't really benefit us to learn Euro, the Eurocentric education. What we need to know is how wealth is actually made, how wealth is actually maintained. Right. What, what is health. real health? Mm-hmm. We need to know these things. What, 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 how we need to change our mindset, um, how our conduct outside of the house, mm-hmm. because this is, Keisha and I were talking about this just today. Our conduct outside of our house, we, ha- we don't have the luxury of being individuals. We don't. So if somebody sees us doing something wrong, mm-hmm. that's a reflection on us all. Yep. So the way we look at it is this. Let's say there's a a, a, a Target employee or a McDonald's employee, and they have their uniform on, and they go out and commit a crime. When people see them commit that crime, that's going to be a reflection on Target okay. yep. or McDonald's. Right, and that's where the media was put, the Target exactly. employee. Exactly. <laughs> so what we say is since when we have our uniform on, our black skin, 
That bit we cannot remove. <laughs> we can't remove. We have to act accordingly while in public. Because what happens is, and, and we did so much research on this, and we see, you know, that all the police officer shootings and all these right. things. A lot of people say it's racism, racism, racism. We believe it's fear, fear, fear based off of racism. Exactly. And we'll, give it, we'll, we'll explain this. Let's say you were, Kim, let's say you were outside walking and you ran across a bear. What would your first impression be? If I ran across the street? Across, across the bear. A bear. You saw a bear, a grizzly bear. If I, well, first thing I would do probably is freeze and do what they tell you to do, put your hands in the air and act like you're bigger than you are because I can't outrun a grizzly. So, okay. <laughs> but it would be fear. Exactly. But you've never met any bears before, right? No. No, I have not. Except for a zoo or something like that. So you're, you're basing your experience off how you would feel based on what you've seen in the media. Exactly. Right. So that's what these police officers are doing. They're afraid of us, especially black men. So they're going to be just like we're like a bear to them. They're going to be quick on the trigger when it comes to us. And it's based off of racism, no doubt about it. But it's fear, and it's fear based off of what the media is portraying us as. Right. So and we have to control our own image. And not only that, but um, it's what they see on the street, too, because – I was just talking about that um, the other day when I went to to the grocery store. Is that we see like if if you see a group of black young black kids and you see and you're and you're a white individual and you're and they're loud and they're you know having a time whatever they might just be talking about whatever and you have no idea, but but they're immediately they're afraid because they see a group of black individuals that may mean exactly. nothing, not completely harmless. But you're, they just hear loudness and, you know, carrying on and, you know. And that's the importance of controlling our image. We can't allow other people to portray us in a negative light anymore. We can't allow that. It's it's actually killing us, and it's stopping us from exploring the opportunities that we have. The little opportunities that we do have is stopping us from exploring those. So we have to control our image. So this is all in the New Black Code. This is... We we need the help of the black community, um, and we just yeah. It just takes it takes. Like you said in the show earlier, that it takes everyone's participation, even if it's a little bit of a participation. And it doesn't mean it has to be, you know, you don't have to start a new group already or whatever. Just support the things that is already out there. Um, our, our basic goal is to utilize the knowledge that we already have, along with the money that we already spend to start building the things that we just talked about, our own, our, our own businesses, our own foundations for businesses. And we've partnered with several companies. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what they'll do is if we spend money with them, they'll give us a portion of that money that we spend back. And we spend about $1.1 trillion. Trillion. Dollars, trillion. Trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. On, we, we, what do we, we, we don't know what we spend yeah, on. We spend on stuff that doesn't come back to us. So this will come back to us. And what we're going to do is the first thing we want to do is we want to start to fund our small business entrepreneurs. So people who want to start their business, fund those people. Right. right. Because Because, Dr. Tisha, when when she started her practice, you've heard of redlining before, right, Kim? Yes. 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 
Well, for me, I thought I came out of school, I was working for a while before I was ready to open my own business, and I thought it would be a little bit easier than it was, but I went to several banks, and my own credit union even denied me of a loan. And it's crazy to think of it that you're a doctor and you can't even open your own practice, but this this stuff is going on today, now. And, And there are countless people just like her who need that leg up. And we were watching, exactly. we watched our video, we were watching um, the Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, oh, yeah. and he said that the Jewish community had a company that actually did that type of thing for their community. So we need something exactly like that, and that's what we're trying to build with the New Black Hills. Exactly. And so, you know, um, and that's wonderful because, I mean, it would be like a holding company and, you know, basically helping people to establish you know, their own businesses and getting the money to continue to circulate a few times in our community before it goes out. And and basically, you know, you were talking about, you know, the Jewish guy and, you know, what they did for their community. And many people, Jewish, you know, white people, what have you, they see black people as basically, you know, liquid money. Because mm-hmm. as soon as we get the money, yeah. we go and spend it in other communities as opposed to spending it in our own community. And I'm glad that you brought up redlining because that has been a major issue. And, you know, this is why, you know, I've had people get a little upset with me, but this is the truth because it's like I've talked about the history in this country and how you see all of these white suburbs surrounding the inner city. And basically, you know, black people and Latino people were basically pushed into these inner cities. And I basically said that they were nothing but black and brown reservations. And what's happening now is, oh, yeah, what's happening now, the white people are trying to come back into the city. They're regentrifying these cities because they realize that the property was valuable. And they're pushing the people of color out to the suburbs. And at the same time, the manufacturing jobs are going away, so the good-paying jobs are not there anymore. They're stopping, or you know, the bus service, you know, at a certain time of the day if they don't cut the line basically, you know, taking away the opportunity for the people in the suburbs to come into the city, which is what they want, and just a number of atrocities that we're dealing with. And this has happened time and time again, you know, even in our own communities. You know, one of the issues I have is with all of these 501c3s, whether, you know, it's a church or what have you, they pay no taxes. And they're Segregation, yeah, and the people in the neighborhood are the ones that are suffering. And I feel that all 501c3s should be taxed at least at the commercial rate. Now, there are some exceptions. You know, some of these smaller churches is grandma, grandpa, and all their grandchildren. No, you know, you know. And, and and that's different. But people like Creflo and Eddie and TD and all that, they need to be taxed. At you know at at the commercial rate. I'm not talking about the smaller churches in our communities because a lot of those churches, while I may not be religious, one thing that I do know and I do protect the black community and the black church to a degree. Many of those churches are helping people in the community, and I'm talking about some of the smaller ones because that has mm-hmm. always been the point of our community. That is where you go when you need food. Some of them have, you know, the food pantries and they give the food out to 
a lot of them have the LIHEAP program, and so it helps people with their electricity and their gas. But, yeah, no, I think everybody should be taxed in some way or the other because, um, you know, I mean, I think we'd all enjoy a tax-free life. <laughs> right. Yeah, because a lot of those mega churches, and when you think about what these some of these pastors are buying, you're thinking, so why don't you use that money and and educate these people so that they can build wealth and right. and and be healthier and things like that instead of using it to buy a plane or. <laughs> See, I think a lot right. of the times if you, if you use that money to actually help people, maybe they're thinking that they won't need them anymore. And so that's why they're right. that's not the focus. But I, I, I don't know. And it goes back to your theory from earlier. You know, it's about selling fear. And fear right. in and of itself is is an industry. Poverty is an industry. This country right. and it has monetary value. So, you know, that's the point that I'm trying to get across that this is being done deliberately and this is how they capitalize off of it. And so, you know, to me, the big bad wolf, and I'm going to talk to you all about your wolf theory, but the big bad wolf is capitalism and white supremacy because you can't have capitalism without white supremacy and racism. I, I agree. The big bad wolf is capitalism. And, like, yes, that's actually true, yeah. Yeah, and the, exactly. the hard part about it is that money motivates people. That's that's the that's the country we we live in. So it's hard for us to just march and do speaking and things like that. We have to well to pool our 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 income and our resources. That's why this, the new black codes and build businesses and be able to support each other. So that way we we aren't you know getting picked on. So we're not worried about okay, so-and-so denied me of a loan or right. my my car note is way higher than the other guy who has the same exact... Right. <laughs> uh, if, we had our, if we had our own businesses, i.e. our own, our right. own uh, banks, uh, credit unions, that type of thing, our own businesses where we can hire our own people, a lot of these things like, you know, I can't find a job or my name is preventing me from finding a job wouldn't be... An issue. The only, the only way it's an issue is because we don't have our own stuff. That we're relying on right. on everyone else. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Going back into the community, hiring people who you know a lot of the companies will not hire. And I've talked about it before. You know, some of our you know brothers and sisters that have been incarcerated, they've worked for some of the largest companies in this country while, you know, incarcerated. and But they were good enough to be customer service agents or telemarketers or what have you while they were inside the penal system. But once they're released, you won't hire them. And that's something that I've never understood. This is why I feel that we need to boycott not only these corporations but these for-profit prisons. We need to boycott the states because if you go and you look at the contract, the way the contracts are written up is, you know, if if, if this, you know, for-profit prison has 500 beds and you only send them two prisoners, you still get charged for the 500 beds. And so it becomes, you know, uh, necessary for, you know, a lot of these, you know, what we're experiencing now with state violence and arresting of 
black and brown people. You know, you have a lot of people saying black men, but black women are being arrested at the same, if not higher rates than black men now. And what's interesting with a lot of these for-profit prisons, they have contracts with these corporations. So, you know, John may only be making 75 cents an hour as a prisoner, but you know, the prison itself is like a, you know, a temp agency, and and they're making, you know, $70, $80 an hour for John's work, you know, and it's just amazing, you know, how we have not had, we have not really attacked this yet, but it definitely needs to be done. And so um, going back to, you know, what we were talking about here, what are your thoughts on cooperatives? Cooperatives. Can you, expand, can you expand on that? Cooperative as in? Okay, so, you know, you're saying, you know, building these businesses, going into the communities. And so one of the things with a lot of Asian people, especially the Korean um, beauty supply owners, what they do, is, and Walmart does this too, they buy it in bulk. And so, you know, let's just say they buy 100 pallets of shea butter. And so they mm-hmm. buy that, they get discounted rate and then they sell it to each other at a discounted rate at the same price helping each other grow their own you know um, beauty supply store businesses because you know if you look the Koreans have a lock on that and so you know what I'm talking about is the cooperative in which you know we're able to um, buy things in mass and in bulk and quantity and being able to, you know, supply each of our businesses at a better rate because that's the reason why Walmart has come in and totally destroyed the mom and pa grocery stores and the bodegas and all of that that we grew up with because they can buy in bulk and sell it at a much cheaper rate than the mom and pa stores, and that's how we've lost a lot of that. So, you know, when I'm saying what do you think on cooperatives, is that something that you think that, you know, uh, we should be able to implement in the future so that it helps us all, not just the people in Atlanta, not just the people in Chicago, but throughout the United States, the people that are affiliated with us and part of our network? Definitely. Anything that's going to help us build our foundation is helpful. But like you said, we have to watch out for big mega corporations like Mm -hmm. Walmart, who can eat that up easily. So, yeah. so the biggest thing for us is it doesn't matter how we get it, is that we patronize it. That's right. the biggest thing. Right. If we all decide to use our money to patronize these businesses, it doesn't matter where we get it from. You, you mm-hmm. see what I mean? That would that'd yes. be that'd be almost a moot point if we're buying from each other. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, exactly. So, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, what I was saying is that, you know, buying it in bulk like that, you know, you get a higher return on investment. And so, you know, and it lowers the cost for everyone, so everybody benefits from that. But, I mean, it's a ways to go, but it's it's something that we need to um, look into and aspire to because then everybody profits from that and, you know, the community benefits. Um, I think we have someone with a question. Let's let's bring this in here. 504, may we ask who's calling and what is your question? Greetings. Uh, this is uh, Warren from New Orleans here. Hey, Brother Warren. And, uh, hey, Hello. how are you? I, I was tuning in. I think I tuned in a little late, and I was able to read the show's description, and I was able to Google your guest. 
and I was able to go onto their website, uh, so I'll read further information regarding their uh, their solution, which I think is uh, it's uh, needed among many others who have solutions. But what I want to say is uh, I've developed a new perspective for myself. And what I say now is I don't study the future. I study the past because the past is the future. And what I mean by that is, what I mean by that is when I look at how African-American demographic in this country, particularly not to mention the other black population centers, and the methods that we had to help each other, and I don't think any other ethnic group that's coming here is a model for us. We need to look at what we had been doing throughout our communities in this country. In fact, many studies that have looked at black business communities in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s are saying that African Americans were the model before these immigrant groups came here who we are giving much credit to for doing what they do. And I think we suffer from a lack of true knowledge of the African-American experience in this country on all levels. Oh, yeah, and I I agree with you on that because, you know, when they have these other groups and they put them up as model citizens or model minorities, that is anti-blackness, which is, again, tethered to capitalism, and I'll be talking about it more in depth next Sunday, but, you know, you have Asian people, Latinos, and many of them are rejecting that model minority um, narrative because they also deal with white supremacy. They also, you know, um, you know, uh, are part of this same system. While some embrace it, you know, quite a few of them do not. And you're right, you know, the models that we had in the teens, the 20s, and the 30s, that's why I was talking about Black Wall Street, Wilmington, and all that. We need to go back and study that because, again, they play the same games. History repeats itself. It's just new players. And so we no, have you know, to learn how to act differently. Right. When you look at those that, that different eras, the, the early 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, and up into the 40s, we're talking about black insurance companies. We're talking about mm-hmm. black banks. We're talking about black yep. funeral homes. We're talking about the very foundation of economic activity from which other enterprises spring from. And I'm going to tell you right now in 2015, on the verge of 2016, regardless of the trillion-dollar spending power we have, it appears we are so far from that, so far the socialization of ourselves at this point, the the behaviors we've adopted based on the beliefs that we've been infused with from the outside, it looks like we are very far. I mean, like we're way out of the universe to doing the behaviors that many of our forefathers did to uh, maintain a floor for themselves in spite of the most hostile situation we were in. And, and you know, what I say to that is that is why it's beautiful to see these movements because, again, 
I never thought that I would see this in my lifetime. And a lot of what's happening now, I was talking about this 20, 25 years ago, saying that we needed to have another civil rights movement, another phase of it. And that is what's beautiful about Daryl and Dr. Keisha's, you know, um, you know, grassroots movement right here, is that they're trying to bring us back to center. They're trying to center it on it because it's like this. The only way you're going to re- have power in this country is through economics and politics. And so, you know, right now they're focusing on the economic side of it where you have Black Lives Matter and a number of other movements that are focusing on the politics. And we're not going to always agree with each other, but if we work together and learn how to work through those differences for the betterment of all, we can get a lot achieved. And so seeing what's happening with Daryl and Dr. Keisha, I just think this is beautiful. You know, I want to encourage them. I want to encourage the other people out there that are starting grassroots movements such as this. You know, they may even hook up with Dr. You know, Keisha and Daryl there. And the name of their site is thenewblackcodes.com. And, you know, again, I am encouraging them. I like what I'm hearing. And, you know, I know they have to run, but I want Daryl and Dr. Keisha to know that they're welcome back at any time. They want to come back and talk to us. And I want to give them the opportunity to give some parting words, let everybody know how they can contact you. And, you know, I believe your email address is thenewblackcodes at gmail.com. But please give us some parting words because I know this is Daryl's birthday weekend and, you know, so we want to make sure you all get a chance to get out and enjoy yourselves. But please let us know um, some parting words. Okay, thank you. And we just want to comment on, on the caller, and we appreciate his call. Um, our biggest thing is changing our mindset. That's the biggest thing. You can't do it. Wealth doesn't mean anything. Health doesn't mean anything. Conduct doesn't mean anything if you don't change your mindset. And the beauty about changing your mindset is that you can do it anytime you want. There's nothing nothing stopping us from saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to do it this way. There's nothing stopping us from doing that. So that's the beauty of it. So um, we're talking a lot about wealth, but we're a huge proponent of health. Exactly, and families. Families, of communities. But in this country, in our capitalistic society, wealth talks the loudest. So that's what we've Mm -hmm. been actually talking about. But, uh, hey, we, Kim, we appreciate you um, having yeah, us thank on. Thank you so much. And we thank you for all the listeners out there that are tuning in today. And definitely follow us on Twitter at New Black Codes. You can also follow us on Facebook, the New Black Codes, as well as Instagram. So, you know, the New Black Codes. <laughs> we appreciate you guys. And we're, we're definitely listeners, and we would love to come back on anytime. Excellent, excellent. So, you know, definitely, you know, we're going to be keeping up with you guys, and if there's anything that you need or you want to promote something, just reach out. You all know how to contact me, and, you know, we'll go from there. But like I wanted to say, you know, you all are young people, and, you know, I totally salute you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this. So, yeah, so, you know, I just appreciate it. So, you guys, you enjoy your weekend, and like I say, um, please feel free to reach out. For those that would like to converse with them, you can do so, the new black codes at gmail.com, 
and the website is thenewblackcodes.com. So you will be able to uh, read more information about them and contact them and see what direction they are headed in. So thank you, guys, and you all enjoy your weekend, okay? Thank you, Karen. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think Raina's with us. I think she's ready to talk. You ready to talk, Raina? Yeah, I'm okay. (laughs) So I would like to thank Daryl Bates and Dr. Keisha Pitt for joining us today. Brother Warren called in. His line dropped because I just wanted, I was actually going to, you know, engage him a little bit more. So if he calls back in, you know, we can talk a little bit more about it. But, um, you know, right now, you know, they're talking about the new black codes, and they're absolutely correct about some things. But my question is how many people out there know about the original black codes and how they were instituted? Did you know that black codes were laws? passed by, you know, um, Confederate states, you know, after the Civil War, which was during the Reconstruction, okay? And and so it's just interesting, and, you know, you need to understand the history to really understand what's happening now. And so when when Warren was talking about how he doesn't necessarily see the future, he sees the past and the present, you know, there's a lot of accuracy to that. Because history really does repeat itself. And this is one of the reasons why we stress that on this show. And so, um, you know, if you go and you look up the new black, not the new black, I'm sorry, you go look up black codes during slavery, you'll find a number, a number of things. And, you know, again, these were laws that were passed during the antebellum South. You know, and even in the north, like I read earlier today, you know, Philadelphia, you know, they had laws basically barring black people from good-paying jobs. Because you have to remember with quite a few of the slaves, they were trained with um, some really good traits. You know, um, being a mason, that is, you know, a good trait, a tool and die maker. You know, and a number of other things, you know, they were trained to do these things and they were experts in it, but they were barred from having jobs that would allow them to acquire, you know, mass wealth. So, you know, it's just as important to go back and understand about what happened with the slaves and the colonies and, you know, the South and what was happening, you know. So you had Jim Crow laws and you had black codes, right? And so the difference between the two, you know, there's a slight difference, you know. And so if you go back and you look at President Johnson's Reconstruction Plan, you'll see how some of the southern states passed laws to limit the rights and freedoms of free slaves, the ones that were, you know, uh, emancipated, you know, because that's why we have Juneteenth, because quite a few slaves in Texas did not know that they had been free. So, again, you know, you hear these things, and a lot of people don't know the history about it. So, yeah, Juneteenth, go and look that up. And also part of that is that white people still wanted to control the lives of the former slaves, you know. And so you just had a lot of examples out there. You know, we black people or black men were denied the right to vote. 
or act as jurors in, in trials. And a lot of people don't realize that it wasn't until 1924 that Native Americans were allowed to vote as well. So I know I'm interspersing a lot of different details, but, you know, I want us to make sure that we not only know our history, but also know some of, you know, the effects or impacts that it had on other, you know, cultures. And so, you know, black people couldn't own guns or take certain jobs. And when it says certain jobs, it's talking about well-paying jobs. They did not want us to own land, um, you know, and if they weren't working, they would be fined or arrested. Now, how about that? If you were out of work or unemployed, they could fine you and arrest you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's why, you know, when we do the show on black Americans, you know, New Deal or Raw Deal, we're going to talk about some of that, you know, before the New Deal. For every one black person that was unemployed, there was one unemployed white person. However, when they had to make some you know, um, deals with the South for the New Deal, that changed. So now for every one white person unemployed, it's two unemployed blacks. And so it's important Mm -hmm. that you guys go back and you understand these things, and it helps you to understand what's happening now. And so, you know, again, you know, these laws were put in place before certain amendments were passed. I believe that was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And so for the Jim Crow laws, laws, um, Jim Crow laws, what the hell is going on with me today? Jim Crow laws, uh, they were laws that basically enforced, you know, segregation or the separation of blacks and whites. And this was illegal in the South. And these laws were put in place after Reconstruction was considered over. So these came to be after the Reconstruction. And they actually remained laws until the 1960s. And truth be told, some of those laws are still being enforced. You know, when you have a presidential, you know, a a gentleman running for, you know, the president of the United States, he still believes that we're, you know, living in a society where, you uh, you know, where blacks are not considered human. He he believes that Dred Scott is the law of the land. Now, this is someone that wants to be president of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it was Huckabee. I believe it was Huckabee who felt that, who believed that Dred Scott was still the law of the land. I posted it, you know, and so, yeah, you can look that up. But I just thought it was interesting, you know, some examples of the Jim Crow laws. Black and whites could not sit together on trains, go to the same school, or stay at the same hotel. You know, and, you know, we've talked about SNCC, S-N-C-C, and how they, you know, were working to integrate lunch counters and a number of other things. And this was during the civil rights, black power movements there. And, like I said, you had Daisy Bates, you had... um, Sarah Nash, you had Ella Baker, you had all of those people that helped put together SNCC and and what they were doing. And these were young people. These were students. And it was not only blacks, but you had whites, you had Asians, you had Latinos that stood with us then, and they're standing with us now. It's a lot about history that, 
you know, people do not understand, and they don't want you to know this. But I think it's extremely important that you do know this and you know about these things. And so, you know, again, blacks couldn't eat at certain restaurants. They had the colored water fountains and, you know, black bathrooms. And what's so interesting is this one story, and I forgot who it was, but it was a young man, and he was out, and it was a white young man. He was out with his mother, and they lived in the north, but they were visiting somebody or something in the south. And he saw the water fountains, and it said, one said, for whites only, and the other one said, for coloreds only. And so he went and drank out of the for coloreds only water fountain. And his mom asked him why, and he was saying he never saw colored water before. So, you know, know, he was curious. And so it's just, it's a lot, you know. Um, Even in movie theaters, you know, black and white people had separate, you know, places to sit. And, you know, when I was talking to you all about, you know, when certain bills went before, you know, the Supreme Court or other courts, there was a section where the blacks sat. It was always up in a balcony. And so, you know, this these are examples of, you know, of, of some of the Jim Crow laws. You know, even then, you know, white nurses couldn't help black men when they went into the hospital. Um, you know, it was everything was separate, and they claimed separate but equal, and that wasn't, you know, the case. I mean, you know, blacks and white people, they couldn't get married. You know, go look up the Lovings family. Look up that story, you know, which is a great story, and, you know, how they fought to stay together as a black woman and a white man and how they were chased, you know, out of their own state. So it's just go and look it up, guys. You know, go back. Remember you had the black baseball teams and the white baseball teams. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of, you know, the black sports that were separate, you know, a lot of those people, they don't get the, you know, the heroism. They don't get the accolades that they so deserve. You know, black people couldn't go to the public libraries because, remember, we're not supposed to know how to read. And was I, I'm trying to remember because I didn't get a chance to read the article because I queued it, and I'm going to have to go back and find it. But it was talking about how some white people believe that educating black people even now, um, it, it makes us prone to violence. And so I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, so that's why I didn't read it immediately. Probably because I, we can read what's been done to us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the fact that we're demanding equal rights, I guess they would consider that violence to them because they don't want to give up their privileges, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, black and white prisoners, black and white blind people, you know, it's just amazing Go. And look this up, you know, and a lot of these, you know, different laws, they overlapped. So, you know, go back and read it, and the history is absolutely amazing. And this is why we keep falling for some of the same tricks, because we don't know the past. We don't understand, you know, what was happening. You know, and there was this thing called pig law, P-I-G, pig law. 
you know, and basically with the black codes and the pig laws, you know, it, it, it perpetuated, you know, discrimination in the South, you know, especially in the South, the Southern criminal justice system. And so go and learn this and understand. Go look up the Freedmen's Bureau and the role that that played then and now. You know, they just digitized a lot of information, a lot of documents from slavery, and now it's available for free through the Freedmen's Bureau online. So, you know, again, a lot of this has been happening, and it's just it's important. It's important for you guys to kind of know and understand how all of this has come about. And, you know, that's why we get hoodwinked and bamboozled at times, you know. But, um, yeah, you know, basically after the Reconstruction, you know, the black codes, in many cases, you know, they repealed them. But it was replaced by what was called pig laws. And, you know, I have to go and look a little bit more of this up because I know a little bit about it. But, you know, I'm going to have to go and do some more. But basically it's saying that the pig laws said that stealing a farm animal or property more than $10 was grand larceny and punishable by up to five years in state prison. And this was aimed at freedmen or, you know, blacks that were emancipated who were, you know, working um, or not working but driven to, you know, basically steal livestock So because they were poor and had no land. And so just go and, and look at this and look this up because this caused conv- conviction to skyrocket from 272 arrests in 1874 to 1,072 arrests in 1877. So just go and look it up. And, you know, we couldn't afford lawyers, you know, and in many cases we couldn't even testify in court. And so it was even happening then with unfair sentencing and lack of representation or sometimes the representation, you know, the public defenders that, you know, do help, many cases they're overworked, they're underpaid, and in some cases they're not prepared or or just not good lawyers. And, you know, I hate to say that, but it's true. And I'm not saying all of them are that way. You just have your select. So, um, yeah, guys, look this up. I think it's important for you guys to understand this and, um, you know, understand about, you know, different amendments and the impact that those amendments played on a lot of these laws, you know. So that's that and much, much more. So, Raina, is there anything that you wanted to add about I mean, the black COVID? I mean, you went through a lot of it. So, I mean, <laughs> without giving an entire lecture, I mean, that's pretty much what the black hills were about. It was about reestablishing racial order after slavery. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, these laws were widely accepted in the South. And, you know, again, you know, they were there to undermine the 13th Amendment. So that's why we're saying it's important for you all to understand these things. And even now, you have people out here in the 
Republican Party who feel that the only people who should be allowed to vote are those that own land. And, you know, and, and certain people, you know, and see what's funny is they say of an education, of a certain educational level, and the statistics show that black women are the most educated group in this country. And Raina and I, we've talked about the double standards, you know, because when you see some of these panels and some of these conferences, you'll hear, you know, the introductions to the women. And you have doctor here, doctor there, doctor there. But when it comes to some of black men, that's that's not a requirement. You know, you have this person over here who's a political activist. You have this person over here that's a community activist. And there's nothing wrong with that. But black women are held to a much, much higher accord. And so, and that's still present today. You know, and we have, we've acquired, you know, the least amount of wealth. And so, you know, it's just interesting, you know, and like I said, go look up the black codes in different, you know, different states like Mississippi, Illinois, Texas, Florida. And you'll be amazed at some of the, you know, the laws that were enacted, you know. And they say Mississippi had some of the harshest. So, you know, they didn't want to grant, you know, certain legal freedoms to black people, you know. So, like I said, it's a lot of history. Go look up the radical Republicans of the North. Look that up, find a lot of information about that. I'm going to look up the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And that's another thing. There were several Civil Rights Acts passed. So go back and look them up, you know, and see their significance. And 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 just look at the wording of it. It's, it's absolutely, you know, mind-blowing in some cases. But... Yeah, yeah, go and look this up. Um, look up Debo's Review, D-E-B-O-W, Debo's Review. And, you know, it's a journal, and it has a lot of this information in it as well. And like I said, you know, some things I may post, other things not so much, but, you know, I just want you guys to go out and do some research you know, looking to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments and their significance. And like now, because I posted an article um, a few days ago, and I was talking, it was talking about Alabama and how, you know, these, you know, voter um, laws that they're passing. And what they did in Alabama, they shut down 31 DMVs you know, which is where you go to get your driver's license and you can register to vote there. And so now there are only four DMVs open in the entire state. Mm -hmm. And the ones in the black communities were shut down. And so now you have people that have to travel an hour or two to get their driver's license as well as, you know, register to vote. And some of them can, I'm not sure what Alabama laws are, but I'm not sure if you can register to vote online. In some states, you can do that. And so I'm not familiar with Alabama. I apologize for not having that information available, but I just thought of it right now. And so, you know, even with 
you know, the Voting Rights Act that was passed. It was based on Alabama, you know, refusing to allow black people to vote. And so, you know, go back and they would, you know, they they would ask, you know, crazy questions like how many bubbles are in a bar of soap or they'll have a jar full of pennies and you would have to guess, you know, how many pennies were in there or they would give you um, questions, you know, and that's why we had the freedom schools. And the freedom schools were there to teach black people how to pass those tests in order to register to vote. And I believe that the freedom schools should even be brought back now for a number of different reasons. Just like I say, we need to pick the um, the poor people's campaign back up. But you know, you had the, you know the poll taxes, you had the literacy tests, you had all of these grandfather laws and clauses, and you know it's just as important, you know, that you guys go back and look this up because he is happening again now. And this is what I mean about history is repeating itself. Because when the Supreme Court struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, immediately North Carolina and Texas passed laws. And, you know, subsequent states have passed laws since then. And so their next obstacle, what they're going to knock down next, is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And so you all need to pay attention and see what's happening. And, you know, we need to be protesting a lot more, you know, of these things. And so, yeah, go back and read the 14th and 15th Amendment, um, you know, about the voting protections in this country. So, yeah, look it up. Um, You know, they said bizarre gerrymandering. Well, that's happening even now. Um, Because, Raina, didn't we talk about what was happening in North Carolina about how the schools are being resegregated? And it's not just North Carolina. It's happening all across the country. specifically about North Carolina. Yeah, we were talking in general about school resegregation being worse now than it was in the 1950s. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it was one community in North Carolina that fought it. You know, the black, Latino, and white families they fought it. They would not allow them to basically redistrict and bus their children to different schools because they realized, you know, the value and the diversity, you know, in, in those particular schools. But this is happening all across the country. Look at what's happening with charter schools. You know, mm-hmm. we're having an issue here in Chicago. You know, Mayor Emanuel shut down 51 schools in, you know, black and brown and poor white communities. So now these children have to walk further to get into school. And so, you know, they were saying there was no money for these schools, but they had to basically start paying people to have to allow these kids safe passage. So now you have people out there employed making sure these kids, you know, you know, are relatively safe getting to school. And so it's just interesting um, Arnie Duncan resigned as Secretary of Education. You know, he'll be leaving that post in December. But what I would tell you guys, those who are interested, you know, go and Google Arnie Duncan, Ohio Charter Schools, and that will explain a lot to you. 
But, you know, what's happening is, you know, with these charter schools, you know, studies have shown that these charter schools are no better than the public schools. As a matter of fact, the public schools, you know, they they tested higher than the charter schools. And many of these charter schools are privately owned. So, you know, they're privatizing education, you know, in this country. And I'm like, you know, what's happening here? You know, because in Illinois, you have some black preachers up here, Reverend Meeks and Reverend Hatcher and many, many more, and they rallied around the Republican, you know, Governor Wannabe. You know, he was the nominee for the Republicans. And they rallied behind him and threw their support behind him. He was elected, you know, the incumbent Democrat was kicked out and he was elected, and now he's cutting all of these social programs. And this is having a major impact on the people in these black preachers' congregation. And, you know, many black people in those congregations, they were angry. Many of the people in the community were angry. And now see what's happening. And some of them wanted political appointments. And so, you know, it's not just happening here in Illinois. This is happening all across this country, which is why you hear us talking and saying that some people who may have a seat at the table, they want a better seat, and you have other people who do not have a seat at the table, and they want a seat. And, you know, you have your black political elite, and they are partakers in this. And we need to hold them accountable as well. Because, unfortunately, you know, when we hear a name, you know, especially if it's a familiar name, we vote for them. Even if they do not come through with their promises, even if they vote on laws that, you know, have a negative impact on our communities, you know, and this is why I'm talking about the economics and the politics. You know, we have to get more engaged. And unfortunately, you have some some religious, some churches that tell their, you know, parishioners not to engage in politics in any way whatsoever. Um, I believe, you know, well, I'm going to leave them alone. I'm not going to talk about them. So um, it's just it's interesting. Um, you know, white-only primaries, um, you had violence, you know, physical intimidation. It's just it's amazing. Go and look this stuff up. You know, some of the things that, you know, they would do to keep blacks from voting. And so when you look this up, you will see it's in many cases says Democrats, you know, keeping blacks from voting. And so, again, that was before the crossover. This was before, you know, the New Deal. And so I just think it's important, and I think it's interesting, this history that we're living. But, you guys, I mean, the information is out there. You know, I, I would have loved to have had the Internet when I was in school, when I was like in, you know, fifth, sixth, you know, grade, this would have been absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, I can only imagine, you know, um, you know, the impact it would have had on my young mind and my young life. I mean, I've seen the impact that it's having on it now. So, yeah, yeah, go back and take a look and look up Reconstruction, and, you know, freedmen and, you know, with their wanting to be educated, 
you know, you can go on and look up a lot of these universities, especially some of these Ivy League universities. They did not um, admit black people for a long time. So I remember a few years ago during Black History Month, every day of that month I put out details about things and gave the links about things that we didn't know about, accomplishments that we did and that we made. And, you know, I haven't done it since, but, you know, maybe I'll do it next February. I don't know. But, you know, with Dr. Keisha and Daryl, when they were talking about, you know, when they went to go to get the loan for Dr. Keisha to open her own practice, how she was running, you know, up to these brick walls. And this is nothing new. This has been happening for a while, and this is why with some of the legislation with the Department of Justice basically gave reparations to black farmers, this was some this is one of the reasons why because black farmers were having a hard time getting loans to expand you know their farms or buy the equipment that they needed, and even the reparations they were given you know were negligible and so you know, you know, um, you know. Even then, you had some of the white farmers, and even now, with some of the white businesses, you know, complaining that you know they had to compete with black people, and it's just it's amazing all the you know roadblocks that we've come against, and yet we're still here, and yet we're still here, still working, still striving, so. You know, guys, go and look up Slavery by Another Name. That was on PBS. Um, I think they have, um, they uploaded it to YouTube. So I think it's up there. You can go and watch it, but it talks about the black codes and the pig laws. So, you know, educate yourselves. Educate yourselves. You know, and so, you know, the pig laws then is, you know, we call it broken windows policing now. And look it up. Look it up. This is one of the reasons why you have the protesters out there. And this is what they're fighting against. So look up broken windows policing. Look up pig laws. You'll see a lot of similarities. Um you know, and you had the vagrancy laws, made it a crime to be unemployed, you know, and, you know, like I said, look at it. Look at this. It's important. So, Raina, do you think you could have survived during those times? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess so. I mean, black people... Black people have always found a way to survive despite everything. So I think it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, um, here are some of the black codes for Louisiana. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I could have lived under these conditions. I mean, if, if that was all that I knew, of course. But, you mm-hmm. know, let's say they tried to re-implement this stuff now. I think they'd have a hell of a time. But, you know... Um, I mean, I don't know that they what, would, honestly, because I feel like a lot of this stuff is going on right now and it's no different than it was before. It's not... I mean, it in some ways, is arguably worse. You exactly. know what I mean? 
But, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know that you would get much resistance. I mean, I think it would all just depend on how much we're paying attention, you know, and how it's represented, you know. Certainly if it's exactly. represented as, you know, we got to get these Negroes under control, you know, I think you get a lot more pushback, you know. And not just from black people, but, you know, if you make it about, you know, being tough on crime or, you know, right. something along those lines, then, you know, you're likely to get a lot more cooperation from, from blacks, whites, everyone, you know. So. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because when they say tough on crime, they mean tough on black people. And, you know, this is why we talk about these triggers, these cold words, you know, and, you know, all of this. But, you know, in Louisiana, I'm just going to reach you all a couple of the black codes then. And this one right here, which I find interesting, it says, no Negro shall be permitted to preach, exhort, or otherwise declaim to congregation of colored people without a special permission in writing from the president of the police jury. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, every Negro is required to be in the regular service of some white person or former owner who shall be held responsible for the conduct of said Negro. But said employer or former owner may permit said Negro to hire his own time by special permission in writing, which permission shall not extend over seven days at any one time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this this is just, wow. And it says, no Negro who is not in the military service shall be allowed to carry firearms or any kind of weapons within the parish without the special written permission of his employers, approved and endorsed by the nearest and most convenient chief of patrol. And so that article that I posted um, yesterday, the day before yesterday, and it talks about the Second Amendment and its tie to slave states. You all, you know, I highlighted it, so you need to read that. You need to read that. That's important for you to understand what's happening now. Um, I know I've posted articles about how at one point the NRA um, endorsed gun control. And, you know, if you go and look that up, you'll see it's tied to the Black Panthers and, and you know, what that how that came about when they went to, you know, the capital in California, Sacramento, to the legislature, and they, they went armed. And that scared the hell out of Ronald Reagan and a bunch of white folks. So go and look this up, you know, and when you go and you read some of these black codes, you know, I actually, I was, Incensed, you know, because this is some of the stuff. It, it makes you angry. It makes you upset. And like Raina said, some of this stuff is still, you know, law. They just reworded it and renamed it, and we're still living under some of these laws and codes, you know. And so, look it up, because it's disgusting. You know, because it says servants must assist their masters in the defense of his own person, family, premises, or property. You know, no person of color could become an artisan, mechanic, or shopkeeper unless he obtained a license from the judge of the district court 
a license that could cost $100 or more. Mm-hmm. And so just a number of things, you know, Kentucky, North Carolina, you know, and it's just interesting because you have people out here that, you know, they talk about same-sex marriage, you know, um, marriage equality is what I call it, and they forget at one point in time, you know, interracial marriage was a no-no. And it's just a lot of history and a lot of things that we don't know, a lot of things that are hidden in books, and, you know, that's why we share them on this show. And we can never get to everything, never, never. So it's just interesting, Um, and it's important for you guys to know this. And like I said, I am very proud of these young folks who are taking a stand and getting out here and saying, no, we're not going to have this, we're not going to stand for it, you know, and so... It's just, it's it's wild. You had to have permission to travel, you know, different laws and punishments. You see that now. You know, go back and look at how cocaine was given, you know, certain sentences and crack was given another. And how, you know, the Department of Justice had to go and strike that, strike down that, you know, difference in sentencing. You know, Ronald Reagan, you know, Man, I'm telling you guys, go back and read, you know, even with Bill Clinton, some of the laws that he signed and put into place. It just really hurt a lot of our, you know, communities. And, um, you know, orphans, they were placed into forced apprenticeship. You know, just, it's amazing. You know, and the reason why they had these, you know, black codes because, again, they wanted to regain control of the black people, period. They wanted to have control then and now. Look at what's being said out here. Look at it, Look at all of the pushback when we talk about, you know, having, you know, equality under the law in this country. And it's interesting because you have some of the same patriots in this country who give the thumbs up to, you know, people in other countries when they have these uprisings. But with here in America, you know, well, where the blacks are just entitled and they're just whiners. And, you know, what's unfortunate is you have a lot of people of color, namely black people, that are just repeating some of these same talking points. And, you know, whenever we try to bring up race and talk about it, you get the pushback, you know, again, the old trope about black-on-black crime, which is unfair. And if you read um, Khalil Muhammad's book, The Condemnation of Blackness, that book is very thorough in explaining this, and that's why I can't wait to pick it back up and finish reading it, but it's really a good, good book, guys. And so all of this is extremely important, you know, and, you know, they wanted to prevent black uprisings, right? And that is what's happening now. You know, I wouldn't say it's an uprising, but we're demanding equality. We're demanding that our civil and human rights, you know, 
be the same as everyone else. And so, again, like I say, history repeats itself, you know, and the black codes were there to maintain segregation. There was a study that said 75% of white people in this country have no black friends and really have no interaction with people of color. I think that number is and actually higher. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I think it's probably way more in, the, like, closer to the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, possibly, and possibly even into the 90s, but more like the 80s. That number sounds really low. Exactly. Because you know, they're not your friends if they don't know where you live. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. You know, and they're not your friends if they don't invite you to their barbecue. That's another story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) but I'm just laughing. But, yeah, you know, a lot of this was done to maintain segregation and white supremacy. And we're still having the same issues now. They just renamed it. You know, 30, 40 years from now, when we're reading the history books, you know, and it'll say, well, you know, this went on in 2010, 2015, 2020. And it's just amazing the pushback that we're getting because we want to be equal. You know, and even with some of these progressive communities, secular community, you see the same, you see the same thing. And when many of them are afraid to push back because they don't want to be called racist, they go and get their colored minions to go out and make these statements. And like I said, you know, this is going to be a big fight. I'm not going to allow them to destroy the black community, you know, because the black community, whether people want to accept it or not, Religion, namely Christianity, is interwoven into our culture. And so when you have people saying that they want to get rid of religion and they start attacking the black church, this is one of the reasons why some of us take that personal because they know as well as we do that this has been woven into our culture. Now, I'm not saying that we should not deconstruct the ideology. Yes, the ideology. The people know. And unfortunately, you have a lot of people out here who want to attack the people as opposed to the ideology, and that is what I have a problem with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is why we bring all of these things, you know, to the open. So, you know, if you go back and look up November 22nd, 1865, again, that's November 22nd, 1865, this is when the first black codes were passed, and this was in Mississippi, you know, and just go, this history is amazing. You know, it's talking about labor contracts, and vagrancy laws and, you know, crime and punishment. Like I said, you know, the broken windows, you know, policing is the same thing as, the you know, the pig laws and, you know, some of the Jim Crow laws. And, you know, they have not been totally done away with, even though they like to believe and like to tell people 
that, you know, we no longer, you know, live in a racial society. You know, we're post-racial and colorblind. And we all know damn well better. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, it's important, you know, because, I mean, we're learning the history. And, you know, because there's a lot of things that I did not know. And I'm learning, you know, as I go along. And, you know, that's why sometimes I get excited because I'm like, oh, man, I'm excited. I'm happy to know this. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking that, you know, other people will be happy to know about this. But you wouldn't believe some of the pushback that I've got. Well, why are you always posting all that black stuff? Mm-hmm. It's my wall. And it's important for us to know this information. So many of us are walking around without the knowledge. You know, some of the anger that you see with some of the people in the community, I believe some of that is from, you know, the lack of knowledge of some of these things. They know it's wrong, you know, but then you'll have, you know, some people trying to justify it. You know, one, you know, I'll give you one example. There was um, a picture, and basically it was a white man, you know, choking out you know, in a Native American. And when one of the children asked the principal or somebody about that picture, his response, the white, you know, the white principal or teacher's response to that child was, oh, that was just a friendly game of wrestling. Mm. That kid was not stupid. He knew what he saw. I'm sorry, choking somebody out is not a friendly game of wrestling. You know, I mean, in some, in some, in some, I mean, there's still buildings in this country where you can see murals of Native Americans being hung, or right. or or where there's battles drawn of, you know, American forces and and dead Native Americans. You know, um, there's places in this country, public buildings, where this is going on. You know, I mean. I mean, we we talk about, like, how other countries are and how brutal or how genocidal or what have you, but we have it on our walls. We have it on our monuments. We have it in our constitution. You know, we have it everywhere. So the United States is no better. In fact, in in many ways, it's worse. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly, you know, and, you know, not everyone, you know, how can I put it, with the black codes, you know, you had a lot of Republicans because, again, at that point in time, the Republicans, you know, that party was, you know, very sympathetic to the plight of black people in this country. So what happened in, you know, Congress and their response to the black codes they were refusing to seat the Southern representatives. And then with President Johnson, they overrode him and passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866. You know, and then they put together a joint committee on reconstruction, and this was to establish, and this was established to investigate the situation in the South and reported that the Southern states were in a state of civil disorder and had therefore not held valid elections. And so there were a number of things. You know, they passed the 14th Amendment, you know, and they had, um, you know, Reconstruction Acts that were basically passed over President Johnson's veto. 
And so basically this was to provide for more efficient government of the rebel states. And unfortunately, we're seeing this again. And that's why I posted that article about what was happening in Alabama. And it's not just Alabama. I don't want anyone thinking I'm just picking on that particular state. You know, this is happening across the country. You know, so um, (laughs) this is just go and read, you guys. Go and read because, you know, the significance of all of this is basically showing how the southern states, you know, were basically reluctant in in recognizing the freed states of black people or the freed state of black people and how they still wanted to maintain control. And, you know, all of that, you know, we'll talk about it, you know, when we talk about the New Deal and some of the concessions made to the Democrats or the Dixiecrats of that time and why people of color did not necessarily benefit from the New Deal, although we were, you know, sold on that idea. And from that point on is when a lot of black people started voting Democrat. And that mm-hmm. was done on purpose. So, guys, this this is important. So, um, yeah, especially the 14th and 15th Amendments of the Constitution, you know, go and look up enforcement acts. Important that you kind of get an understanding about that as well. You know, Plessy versus Ferguson. You know, something about that Ferguson name, you know. But, um, <laughs> you know, all of that is applicable to this day. So, yeah, you know, look up, you know, President Andrew Johnson and the Black Codes. It's a lot of information out there. And like I said, we encourage you to go out and learn. And I'll tell you all the names of some of the books that I talked about earlier. This is a new book to my collection, and it's called The American Slave Coast, A History of Slave Breeding Industry. And so I'll be talking about that with you know, the half that's never been told for that three-part series. And it may turn into more than three parts, but right now I'm thinking it only be three parts I'm talking about capitalism. And when I talk about, you know, free thinkers, humanists, atheists, um, and their impact on our community as well as their activities in and, 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 and communist and socialist movements, we're going to talk about that. And so the book that I'm using for some of this is called Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression. And this was written by Robin D.G. Kelly. And we're going to do a show on the Liberty Party. And this book was written by Reinhold Johnson. And it's called The Liberty Party, 1840 through 1848, Anti-Slavery, Third-Party Politics, in the United States. So, you know, you got some good ones out here. And, you know, I encourage you guys. So, again, like I said, this is Kim and Raina from Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Any last words, parting words, Raina? Nope. Have a great week. Yes, guys, have a great week. So next week, next Sunday, will be the third part of 
identity politics. And on the 18th, I will, let me see here. Yeah, I'll start my series on black America. Real um, raw deal or new deal. There will be no show on the 25th, but I'll pick it back up on November 1st, okay? So, in you know, on the 25th, I'm not going to make a new show, but I'm just going to post a couple of really good old shows that I think that, you know, we can all use a refresher on. So, with that, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for, you know, listening to the archives. So a lot of information. So, if you go and you look, there are some shows that I did not do live. So, you can catch it. So, all right, guys. All have a great weekend. We appreciate you. Take care.